that is a kick to the pills, uh, you know, wrapped in a anvil dropping right on your head. You know, it's just classic royal stuff. Welcome back to Royals Weekly. I am your host, Marcus Mead, and joining me as always, the human form of the shrug emoji, my brother Mike. Hey, that's how exactly I want to be thought of. Actually, I don't want to be thought of, okay? The shrug emoji is about irrelevance or indifference. I want people to be indifferent to me, okay? As, oh, the, you, you have achieved it, my as friend. As soon you as I... that level of indifference. As soon as I leave their field of vision, I just want to be forgotten because, you know, <laughs> I got my own thing going and I don't need to be remembered by anybody, all right? When you retire, they're going to say, he came, he taught, he left. That's right. <laughs> that's, that's all it's going to be the, said about They it. may omit that middle part because that's kind of a lie. But uh, <laughs> that's, yeah, that's, I mean, he came, he coached, he left. <laughs> that's all I was going to say about it. And he ate lunch in there quite a bit. Uh, anyway, uh, welcome back to Royals Weekly. Thank you so much for coming back. I know the Royals are playing like garbage lately, but hey, we're here to have some fun. We're here to talk about the Royals for the last week. It's going to be a lot of fun. On this week's episode, we're going to recap what we uh, hope was ro- a rock bottom week for the Royals this week. Uh, discuss the minor league system with Royals Farm Reports, Alex Duvall. We love having him on. That's going to be a ton of fun. And then we're going to preview this week's games. But first, we have a new review. And as always, we like to read the reviews that we get on air, especially if they're super positive or fun or funny. And so this review comes from someone calling themselves Nova Carmina. And it is an excellent five-star review in Apple Podcasts. It says, the guys here do good work. They're bright and funny make good use of evidence, and they do manage to balance the light and the dark. It would be easy to just pile on the current iteration of the Royals, as some others do, but these guys are honest without forgetting that we're watching grown men play a game for entertainment. I appreciate the banter and the tone. Always glad to give it a listen. That's just a wholesome, fun, great review right there. I love that. And it's really exactly what we're going for, so we thank you very much for that. Thank That's, you, Nova. That That is what we're trying to do. You're validating so much of the time, because it takes quite a bit of time to create this, so... Uh, you're validating a lot of what we just did. So thank you so much. Go Be like Nova. Go out there. Give us a review on Apple Podcasts. Write it. It'll be fun. We'll read it on the show. It'll be great. Give us five stars on Spotify. Rate us on all the different things. YouTube. We love the discourse that happens in the YouTube comments. I get in there and, and mix it up with the different uh, weekly weirdos in the YouTube comments all the time. So if you have something to say, throw it out there to us. We'd love to hear from you. We also want to mention that Royals Weekly is brought to you by Nap Family Wealth. Mike, can you think of anything more important than securing your financial future? Yeah, my race car bed. Duh. That is, that is this very nice racing stripe. But no. Uh, Mike, anything uh, else? How about the ability to turn nearly anything into a shiv? That's a lifelong <laughs> skill. That's a skill you're going to need, That's people. A skill, people. No. Also, no. Securing your financial future is one of the most important steps someone can take for themselves and their family, and NAP Family Wealth is ready to help you pursue it. This isn't some big, faceless corporation we're talking about here. Knapp Family Wealth is run by J.C. Knapp. He's a huge baseball fan, and he's been helping people plan for their financial futures for 20 years. He can help with retirement planning so you don't have to work until you're dead, education planning so your kids learn to read good, investment management so you can get all that money out of your mattress and get it working for you. Don't spend another day thinking you've got it all figured out. Trust me, you don't. Check out Knapp Family Wealth at Knapp familywealth.com. That's K-N-A-P-P familywealth.com. Securities and advisory service offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor, member FINRA slash SIPC. 
We'll start the review with roster news, though there was not much of it. We did get a sort of final nail in the coffin, or I guess maybe it's like a final gut punch or something on the, the Chris Bubich side. Bubich was, uh, it wasn't, they announced earlier in this week that they wanted to get a second opinion on Chris Bubich, which usually does not mean good things are coming. Uh, the second the second opinion was apparently that he needed Tommy John. And so he will get Tommy John surgery, which will shut him down for the rest of the year. You can maybe expect him to come back second half of next year. Uh, Mike, any thoughts on Chris Bubich being shut down with Tommy John? Uh, any, any thoughts on that? It's, we suspected it, but it still doesn't stop it from hurting, right? We, uh, you know, we, we saw him in spring training and loved what we saw. We saw the early returns this year look like he might've been one of the best or most improved arms in the rotation. And then blammo, this happens. So just hurts so bad and hurts even more knowing that there really isn't anybody to turn to, you know, we, we don't have anything going in, in triple a, uh, it's been some good stuff in double a with, with our boy, Alec Marsh has looked pretty good. Um, but friend of the show. You know, friend of the show and some of the guys in the lower minors have looked good. And I think you actually made like a, some sort of hot take prediction before the season started that Alec Marsh would have a start in major league baseball by the end of the year. You may be right. Like there may not be another option. And, and so, uh, yeah, uh, sucks for Chris Bubich really wish it hadn't happened, but hopefully it, the surgery goes well, he can recover and he comes back pitching the way he did when he left. Yeah, it's really killer, and that depth part is a part of it. I mean, it's killer for Chris Bubich because he's been waiting to have a breakout season like this for three years now, basically, and he's right on the cusp of it. It's feeling great, and boom, you go down with this. Oh, it's rough. Uh, you do hope he can bounce back. You do hope, you know, guys come back from Tommy John all the time, but, you know, it's not a guarantee, too. I mean, we, we've talked about guys in the past who ne were never the same after Tommy John, and so I'm really, really hoping for him that this surgery goes well, that his recovery goes well, and he ends up back right where he was a year and a half, a year, about a year from now, just, you know, diamond fastballs up in the zone, throwing that new slider, throwing that curveball, throwing that change up. And he looks like he, Chris Bubich, who started this year. Um, but you're right. The depth is just not there for their starting pitching. There is no one in AAA I trust right now to jump into the rotation. No one, not a single person. And so it's a big old question mark as to what's going to happen with that rotation spot. It's a big old question. They filled it with an opener and with um, Ryan Yarbrough the last time through. We'll see if they continue to try that or if they're you know going to have no choice but to bring up maybe Austin Cox has looked okay in AAA. Maybe they give him a shot. Drew Parrish I don't think is ready. I watched his last start. He was all right but not great. He doesn't miss a lot of bats. It's a big question mark there. Not really sure but the depth just isn't there and for a team who that's struggling as mightily as the Royals are right now to lose a guy who looks like he was about to emerge for you as a starting pitcher. That's just like classic Royals. I mean, that's like, that is a kick to the pills, uh, you know, wrapped in a anvil dropping right on your head. You know, it's just classic Royals stuff. Uh, in other roster news this week, let's let's get on to something a little happier, I guess. Fran Mill Reyes. A little happier, yeah. Fran Mill Reyes went on the paternity list because apparently he and his uh, significant other had a child. Congratulations to Ran Fan Fran Mill Reyes. Way to go, buddy. Congratulations uh, to the Reyes family. Way to go. I guess congratulations to to your uh, partner, spouse. I don't know if, if it's a spouse or what, but uh, congratulations to to the mother who, who birthed said child. You did a wonderful job. Um, so he was out. For, he's going to be out for a couple days, a few days. Freddie Fermin was brought up in his place. Freddie Fermin, a 28-year-old catcher. You might remember from our um, roster projection episode, we actually thought he would make the roster out of spring training because we thought Royals like his glove a lot better than MJ Melendez. He's played really well in spring training. The numbers look good for him. They did finally bring him up this time. 
Mike, what are your thoughts on Fermin coming up and Reyes going on the paternity list? Well, first, I'm really happy for both Reyes and Fermin. Fermin is older. He was an older kind of prospect guy when he was even signed. They mentioned that today on the on the broadcast. Good to see him get his first hit today, although he got doubled off by Mike Trout at first. But um, it's good to see him get a shot. And, you know, he's been performing so well offensively in Omaha that you hope that maybe this is a little bit of a spark to the lineup. But, yeah, I was a little surprised that it wasn't Logan Porter because they already have, well, prior to Melendez's injury today, they already had the catching options with Melendez and um, Salvi. So I thought they'd bring up Porter, who fits kind of more of the first base. You know, he probably isn't going to play the outfield, but, you know, I thought, you know, he's an older guy. I thought maybe he'd get the the tab or even Michael Garcia or something like that. Somebody with a little more versatility. But hey, I'm happy it's for for me. He he's deserves it. He needs a shot at some point anyway. So good to see him get up here. And I don't know how long it'll last, but uh, while he's in there, let's let him hit. Yeah, and who who knows how long it will last? MJ Melendez left today's game with a with an injury of some sort, some lower back stiffness or tightness or something like that. Don't know if that'll be an IL stint for him or just a couple of days off. But, you know, Fermin acquitted himself well today, and so it was nice to see. I think he's a backup catcher in the major leagues for a few years at least. He's got the defensive ability. Right now he's hitting the ball fairly well. He's hitting it hard. Looks like he's found the approach at the plate that works for him. And so he's really earned this call-up. He's one of those guys who spent a long time in the minor leagues. Um, I hope he sticks at some in some way. You know, I think there's room on this roster for him because I would play MJ Melendez permanently as, a, as an outfielder. I wouldn't have him catching. I would have Fermin on the roster, and he'd be my backup catcher. But I don't get to make those decisions. Maybe someday. Maybe someday. <laughs> uh, uh, we'll see. On the field, the Royals went 1-5 and five this week. It wasn't, it wasn't a winless week for the Royals, but it was close. Uh, they went 1-5, and five, getting swept by the Rangers at home before heading out west where they got one game from the Angels in dramatic fashion. It was a very exciting, fun game to watch. Um, Mike, how did you feel about the week overall? Uh, I'm already kind of entering my numbness stage. That's not a good thing, because as we said before, the way the Royals are out of it before May far too often. Somebody showed, like, um, I can't remember, since 2004, like the record of Major League Baseball teams in April, and the Royals were... Not only last, they were way down there. I mean, like, not even close to the next team up. And so I'm entering, you know, when that happens, I enter this stage of numbness where I still watch the games because I'm sick or something. I don't know. But uh, it, but they don't affect me emotionally in any way. <laughs> it's like, Meh, okay, cool. This happened. I start looking at individual players more, too, rather than the team overall. So, yeah, it, it's I'm getting numb. I'm getting numb. <laughs> yeah, I, I, it's sort of a it, it's an objective analytic brain that I sort of switch to. It's like I'm just watching this as like a purely for information to analyze, you know, like and so, you know, I sort of get into that. The Rangers series one that was one that was particularly rough for me. The Angels series, they were competitive in this last game, had a chance to win that series in this last game. They looked a lot better than they did in that Ranger series. That Ranger series was a travesty. They weren't ever close. It was like a just a straight up pounding that they took at home. And it's, it's hard. I went out to one of those games too, by the way, they got destroyed in that one, 12 to two. And so, you know, it was just a really, a dark, dark series for the Royals against the Rangers there. Hopefully that win in the angels series. And the fact that they're going to play some weaker competition here in the next few weeks gets them to start uh, playing a little better. Mike, some people played well this week. Who was your strong performer for the week this week? 
My strong performer has been performing strongly all year long, even though he might be a terrible human being. Araldus Chapman has been, oh my gosh, hugely resurgent in his career. He had only he pitched only two innings this week, but three Ks in two innings, no walks, no hits. Let's do for the year. For the year, he's thrown eight innings so far. Five or sorry, 15 strikeouts in eight innings. Unbelievable. Only two walks. He's only allowed two hits. He looks as dominant as any relief pitcher the Royals have had since Wade Davis. Yeah. Uh, you took the only, I, I like to look at the hitters first. You took the, like the only hitter that was the very obvious one for this week. Yeah. He wasn't the only one, but like he was one of the only ones, right? Like uh, I took, I, there was, there was one other guy I was considering besides him. I, uh, I took Matt Duffy for my strong performer this week. And he, that's because it seems like they've started to be like, all right, Duffy, you need to be playing more because he's gotten like three games in a row now, I think, because he's hitting. He's hitting and he's playing good defense at third. And that means Matt Duffy needs to be in the lineup. He went five for 13 this week, two doubles, two walks, four strikeouts. Will he ever be a world beater? No. But right now he is so, so head and shoulders above some of the other guys they can run out there. Michael Massey, Hunter Dozier, even Nicky Lopez. Like he's just head and shoulders above those guys in, at the plate. And they need offense so badly that he, they got to ride the hot hand right now. And so Matt Duffy's had a great week this week. What a good signing for them in this offseason. Non-roster invitee. They got him for free. You know, it's just a minor league deal. And he's come out and really been the one of the only guys doing anything for them offensively to start the season. And great to see. He's really ingratiated himself a lot. Playing pretty good at third. Had an error today, but I don't think it cost him anything. Um, so great to see from Matt Duffy. Hope he keeps it up. Mike, tell us about the other half of the list, the other side of the spectrum. <laughs> Who is not a strong performer for you this week? Well, it's Salvador Perez. He had a little bit of a rough week going three for 22. All three hits were doubles, which was nice. Uh, only one walk, which you're never going to expect. That's actually not a bad week for Salvador Perez. Uh, four strikeouts. But the hard thing is what I have next there. He came up empty in some really big situations this week, which isn't like him. You know, he seems to seems to come through for the team and has for years, but he struggled mightily at the plate this week. And hopefully he can turn that around next week as he's likely to get, you know, plenty of catching opportunities with Melendez possibly being down for a few days. Yeah, these are those salvy cold stretches that I just, they, I'm going to gouge my eyes out. They're so hard to watch. I cannot watch him flail at pitches four feet outside the strike zone. It kills me. It just, as a guy who's, who's, who thinks that swing decisions and approach are probably the most important thing about hitting at the major league level, to watch him just go out and sort of flail at pitches so far outside the strike zone, it kills me. It really, really kills me. It happens during these cold stretches of his. Yes, he'll eventually get hot again, and he'll be hitting balls, you know, a foot outside the play, outside the strike zone for singles or something like that. But right now, it is just it grates at me. I cannot stand to watch it. Um, hopefully, especially when the rest of the offense is doing terribly as well. It's like, we're supposed to be counting on you. You're not coming through, you know, like it's tough. It's tough in the dark moments because you know, that approach is just so bad. Um, my week performer also has a pretty bad approach right now. And he's a guy who doesn't have a real track record either. I love him as a player and a prospect. And that's Kyle Isbell. He went one for 18 this week with a triple. And that was a very important triple. It's, it, uh, it's, uh, it was this far from being a home run. This, this close to being a home run. <laughs> and it, it got them, it put him as the tying run on third and brought in, you know, a run to get them one run closer. Um, and so he had zero walks this week, though, and six strikeouts. And that's a big signal that Kyle Isbell's approach is not where it should be. 
it seems like what they're doing with Isbell and Massey is saying, we're just going to leave you at the majors to learn at the major league level. Isbell was never treated right as a prospect. He was never given the chance to develop at the, throughout the minor leagues. Massey just never did develop an approach throughout the minor leagues. They both need better approaches. The thing that worries me is that Isbell is a great defender, but you cannot be this bad offensively and, and play every day. He has to at least get up to 80% of major league average in order to, to keep playing. And right now he's not there. Really bad week for him. They're going to keep playing because they don't have a lot of other options. But what happens when Drew Waters comes back? There's a chance that Isbell, if he doesn't get his offense going, finds a, finds a seat on the bench. Mike, tell us your, uh, your theme for this week so we can move into a conversation with Alex. Mine is the name of an old documentary that vilified teachers, which was really a bunch of garbage, but uh, it was it was called Waiting for Superman, and that's what we're doing. We need somebody to come in and spark this offense. Maybe it is Drew Waters. Hopefully it comes before that. Um, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's going to be Freddie Fermin hitting a couple home runs or producing some runs at the bottom of the lineup, or maybe uh, it looks like Bobby Witt Jr. has kind of uh, started to take a step forward a little bit. Maybe it's him. I don't know. We need something to get us going offensively. We need a couple big hits with guys on base. So we're looking for somebody to walk through that door and tear that shirt open and save us. I have a very simple theme for this week, and it's please say that was rock bottom. Royals Weekly is brought to you by All In Physical Therapy. For one-on-one personalized physical therapy, we choose All In Physical Therapy. They took excellent care of our mother after her surgery left her with pain and limited mobility in, in her arm. She loves to work out be active. I once saw this woman crush a keg in her hand, not a can, a whole keg. Yeah. The excellent specialized care she got at all in physical therapy had her back to throwing plates in no time. They don't even let her in regular gyms anymore. People All right, Planet fitness doesn't work for her. Okay. It's golds or higher. Mm -mm. Yeah. (laughs) All in physical therapy knows how to help athletes recover athletes like mom. Uh, It's owned (laughs) and operated by Lee Summit's own Tommy Freebert, a former arena league football player, Northwest Missouri state Bearcat, and a hell of a guy. They have offices in both Blue Springs and Lee Summit, so go over to there to see Tommy right now. Tell your doctor you want to do your physical therapy with the best of the best at All In Physical Therapy. To learn more, give them a call at 816-427-5300 or visit their website at allin-pt.com. That's A-L-L-I-N-P-T.com. For this week's Spotlight segment, we are honored, and I mean that sincerely, we are honored to be joined by our friend and frequent collaborator, Alex Duvall of Royals Farm Report. Make sure you follow Royals Farm Report on Twitter. They are He is the best source of information on Royals minor league system. He knows more about the minor league system than anybody else out there. Make sure you give him a follow. It's at Royals Farm. Very, very important if you want information on Royals minor leaguers. Alex, thank you for joining us. Really appreciate it. No problem, guys. Thanks for having me. It's, it's been a while. I've missed you guys a little bit. Anytime anytime you want to just hang out, just let us know. We'll, we'll go do something Beautiful. Else. We'll go watch a terrible baseball team get destroyed. Oh, my gosh. Um, <laughs> <clears throat> uh, I want to get started with a little context for our audience because not all of them finer, follow the minor leagues as closely as the three of us do. Um, Alex, how would you describe the Royals minor league system at the end of last season? Rebuilding. In a word, rebuilding. I mean, you had uh, what? What? I mean, I don't have a number in front of me, but it was like probably like eighty percent of their best prospects all graduated, right? I mean, I think Prado technically graduated. I don't think he's technically eligible anymore. Vinny, Bobby Witt Jr., Michael Massey, MJ Melendez—they all came up in one year, and it was kind of reminiscent of that 2011 season, right, where Moose and Hosmer and Duffy and Sal 
all came up in one year. And unfortunately, the way that we look at a minor league system, right, it, it, it looks like, oh, no, now the farm system's depleted. It's like, well, yes, but you also have 67 years of control of everybody you just graduated, right? So in theory, you wouldn't really need it to be top five again for another four years and just kind of start that turnover again. But it also took a drop-off that was steeper than I think you would like, right? I mean, it sucks to go from top six or seven system to bottom six or seven system. Ideally, you'd like it to stay in the top 20 at all times. And it's not necessarily feasible all the time, but um, I also think part of that rebuilding process is just restoring the arms that are already in the system. And I think that's the thing I'm most excited about. And I know we're going to get to is the, the lack of arms that were in the system last year kind of were already there. It was just a matter of figuring out what was going to stick and can these guys be made better in a new system. And I think the early returns of that are, this is, this is exactly what we thought where these are talented arms in a really bad pitching development system. Yeah. When, when I think of the, the, state of the system at the end of last season, the thing that sticks out to me is not even the players that are in it. It's the people who are leading it, right? It's like um, when we think about, well, we see some offensive player development going on with with various players who we could name, guys like Tyler Gentry, who had big years last year, Luca Tresh, who emerged, you know, a few other guys who really emerged as legitimate hitters, even if they weren't drafted all that high, because they have this at least better than average and perhaps even stellar uh, offensive player development system. And then you looked at the pitching side and it was just a barren wasteland last year. I don't know if I've ever seen uh, a minor league system as bad as that one was on the pitching side last year with just virtually no standouts, virtually no one looking like they took a significant step forward. I know we're thinking about the changes that they made in the offseason. We're going to talk a little bit about some of those players we're more excited about now. But if you think back to the end of last year, it looked really bleak in terms of the development of pitching for the Royals minor league system. Yeah, and it was it was not even necessarily the just the lack of arms. It was the like like you mentioned, it was the lack of progress. Like, you know, there are times and even I think if we, if we go back to 2019, right, with the hitters, you could have said almost and, and I We've done this before, and it's you could go back and say the exact same thing about the pitching side last year that it was just like, hey, nobody's getting better. And like this is – there weren't even signs of life, right? And it, it's like you look back at that 2019 for the hitters, and it was like, okay, Brewer Hicklin's hitting well. That's good. <laughs> it's like that's that's all yeah. we had. That's all – that's the only one. Yeah. And it was like that. The, the infamous 2019 Wilmington oh squad, gosh, right? Man. Like the, the Prado Melendez, uh, who was the other one? Su- yeah. Suli Matias. Oh, God, yeah. That, 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 oh, yeah. Oof. It yeah. was all bad. I, did, I never even made that, I never even <clears throat> made that connection before. That's, a, that's a kind of a brilliant way of thinking about how bad it was then coming out that year. Of course, the very next year, you know, Melendez shoots, you know, has like a mm. – like a minor league player of the year type season. Um, I don't, I don't know if we're spending that, but we have seen some good results. And Bobby Witt Jr. was literally the player of the year, right? I mean, he was, yeah. <laughs> had, oh yeah. 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 Two guys <laughs> like that. Right. And so not that they're going to have any pitchers win minor league pitcher of the year award this year, but it, it's like so fast. You already see like Linder Avila. Like I was as high on him as anybody. I thought, I thought, and then 
MLB pipeline preseason put him in their top 30 for Royals prospects. And I was like, Hey, that's cool. But I think what, what, what quote did I put in our preseason rankings under Avila's write up? It was like, um, hope at least serves as a friend that will walk along with us to our eventual death or something like that. I can't remember exactly what it was, but it's like, it's like, we can hope like he's probably not going to be any good, but we can hope. And, and the reason for that is, is, in the past, we would see arms like Luinder Avila, and it's like, hey, big kid, throws 96, 97 at times, huge curveball, promising young starter, and those guys never panned out. The rare $25,000 international free agent never panned out. They never came and did anything successful anywhere close to the big leagues. Luinder Avila, at the age of 21, takes a step forward this year and was like third in strikeout percentage in all of minor league baseball. Like after three outings, it's like, hey, that never, ever would have happened under the previous regime. And we're already seeing like tangible benefits of a new approach. And we'll get to that, you know, that approach here in a second. But it's like that just if you just wanted one example of change, it's Luinder Avila and how fringe arms, like not even fringe big league prospects, just Guys who are fringe prospects, like even worth mentioning, you know, on podcasts like this, are now taking steps forward to a point where maybe we could see that guy in the big leagues in a couple of years. Yeah, and we might as well get right into it because I think it's the, it's the topic. I didn't even put it on the list because I just knew this topic was coming up because it is the most interesting and consequential thing about the minor league system this year is how is the pitching going to perform? And so I guess I'll just pose this question to you, Alex and Mike. Feel free to jump in afterwards. What are you seeing from the minor league pitching that has you so interested or excited? It's it's the aggressiveness with which they're pitching and and attacking the strike zone. Like I know everybody, you know, they they made t-shirts, we're going to raid the zone, but that is so much more of a, you know, I know in in baseball the pitchers are on the defense, right? When you are out in the field, you are technically the defense because you are not trying to score runs, which we associate with offense. However, it is the only sport where the defense controls the baseball. And so, you know, one thing I try to tell young pitchers all the time is I know you are the defense, but we are in a lot of other ways, offense. We are trying to play offense with the baseball. We are trying to score three outs. And I think a lot of what I would attribute the Royal struggles to in the past is pitching defensively as if they're trying to avoid making mistakes rather than trying to score outs on the mound, right? And so what that looks like is it's OO count. The the number one predictor of whether a hitter or is going to get a hit or not after the first pitch is whether the first pitch is a ball or a strike. If you look at Major League Baseball for the last 100 years, hitters in O-1 counts, hitters in 1-0 counts, get on base. It's like a separation of like 40% more likely or I'm sorry, no, the, the on-base percentage points are like 400 points higher, but that turns out to something like um, 64%, 65% more likely to get on base. After one pitch, we can already tell which way that's trending, right? So, oh, oh, we would have catchers setting up on the edge of the plate, calling for a fastball that's not geared toward making sure we throw a first pitch strike the royals said they wanted first pitch strikes and no shit like we all want them to throw first pitch <laughs> strikes 
but what are you doing to help young arms throw first pitch strikes? Well, nothing in a lot of cases. I mean, it's one of the first things Paul Hoover mentioned and, and started working with catchers. Hey, it's oh oh set up in the middle of the plate because we need a strike. We need the first pitch to be a strike because it sets up a predictor that we are two-thirds more likely to get the hitter out if the first pitch is a strike. So set up middle-middle. And if they get a hit, which hitters hit like, what, 300 on the first pitch, so that's a 30% chance to get a hit or a 67% chance, whatever it is, to get an out if it's a strike, like let's make sure we throw a first pitch, right? Set up in the middle, and if they get a hit, screw it. That's why they're talking about incentivizing the pitchers Hey, if you give up a home run on the first pitch, we will give you money. Congratulations. You gave up a first pitch home run. That means you did exactly what we asked you to do. I know that sucked, but here's some cash in your pocket. Go take your wife out for a nice date. Like, that is brilliant because you can see it trickling down through the minor leagues. Catchers, watch them, are set up middle-middle on every OO pitch. And until they get anywhere close to being ahead in the zone, that's where the catchers are. They're not moving to the outer thirds of the plate until the pitchers are ahead in the count, 0-1, counts that are more advantageous for pitchers. And even in some of those counts, guys like Chandler Champlain, who struggle with control a little bit, but have electric stuff, I went back and watched, and I'll post some video after the podcast runs, just as kind of a, like, hey, here's what I'm talking about. Um, who caught him the other day? It wasn't um, M. Schaff. Who else is catching down there? Jensen. Maybe Yeah, I think maybe it was Jensen. For some reason, I thought maybe it was Jack Alexander, but I think it was Jensen. It's set up in the middle of the plate on almost every pitch he threw. It's like, right here, like let them hit it because they're not going to. These are high A hitters trying to hit 96, 97 with your curveball. They're not going to hit it. Let's just do a really good job of throwing strikes. So it's not just the fact that they're throwing more strikes early in counts. It's not just the fact that the walk rate is down. It's that we have tangible evidence of how they're going about creating change that suggests, hey, we can probably do this long term. Yeah, and one of the things that you just popped in my head from thinking about that and what you were talking about, if you really as a Royals fan want to look and say, well, how can I tell that they're doing this at the major league level? Take a look at how many pitches are what Mark and I have always called the non-competitive ones. So you'd see them set up on the edge of the zone and they – the guys weren't equipped to locate that well. And so they're throwing pitches a foot and a half outside and nobody's offering at that on OO. Nobody like, I mean, Bubich was the one Bubich and Lynch were the ones that were like, Oh my God, there's another one. They're down one Oh and two Oh on two pitches that weren't anywhere near the zone. And so it's fantastic to see that that is being now eliminated. And to the other point that you were making, we had guys out there in the minor leagues and the major league levels. They were pitching to not get hit hard. They were afraid that their stuff wasn't good enough or that they couldn't locate it well enough. And they're, they're out there not throwing strikes as a result, giving free passes. And it's just so frustrating to watch them do that because you got drafted because your stuff is good enough. Go out there and challenge it and see what happens. Well, I, mean, I think that that idea of like of trying to avoid getting hit hard was embodied entirely by the philosophy that they said that they had at the minor league level, which is step one, teach them to throw a fastball on the outside corner. And it's like, well, what that your whole mindset is like, I'm avoiding the zone. Like I'm, I'm avoiding yeah. trying to get hit. No wonder you're walking so many people. Like no wonder your minor league system leads every minor league system and walks like because you're trying, you're teaching them an avoidance behavior that is just never 
never going to work out. When you're thinking, don't don't hit the heart of the zone. Don't hit the either either you're going to miss wildly like those non-competitive pitches, or you're going to be in the heart of the zone. <laughs> like that's that's sort of like it's a, it's it's a, it's an approach and a tactic issue. And you're right, it has now filtered down throughout the organization because you look at some of these numbers from guys like Noah Cameron, from guys like guy who I'm really interested in going you know, to talk to you about, Steven Zoback, guys like you know. Uh, Alec Marsh, who we're seeing in, in, in Northwest Arkansas, it just looks night and day in uh, strikeout to walk ratio. It's night and day. This is something I've tried to explain to. So I coach high school baseball and, and something that I've tried to explain to kids that I coach today is when I played, I graduated high school in 2013. When I graduated high school in 2013, we would see kids who could hit 90 miles an hour, maybe once per season. Like maybe you like, and there were years where we never saw one. Uh, I, if I played four years of high school ball, we probably saw three or four kids total that threw that had the capability of throwing the baseball ninety miles an hour from the mound. We see it, and in the spring in Missouri, right? It's colder, so we don't necessarily see it all the time in the spring. But every week, sometimes twice a week, we see a kid who, if not in the spring, when they go play summer ball will throw the ball 90 miles an hour with regularity. We played a series against a school uh, two weeks ago. They're, they they threw a lefty. And, and, and by the way, I'm, I'm circling back. They had their first guy in the, in the series was committed to Nebraska. The second one was committed to K-State. The third one is committed to Texas A&M. The whole point I'm making to this is we have an ability now in 2023 to teach – stuff better than ever. And so I kind of level with the Royals in a sense that 10, 15 years ago, it was important that you could hit your spots because guys didn't throw 90 miles an hour all the time at the lower levels. They didn't necessarily do that. I think I was listening to somebody talk about Paul Skeens and versus Steven Strasburg, right? Paul Skeens is the ace at LSU, sits 99 to 100 with like regularity. And they were talking about how when Strasburg was doing that at San Diego State, the uh, the average college starter threw like 89 to 90, and now the average college starter is like 93, 94. Think about that. Ten years ago, it's like night and day the ability of the pitcher. So what smart teams did is they went, hey, we can teach dude to throw hard. We can – we use a very fine, like a very fine camera and tune his spin axis. We can tr- we can train all the stuff. Let's stop worrying about the command. Let's stop worrying about where it's going so much and start worrying about what it's doing and let the location take care of itself because hitters aren't going to just adapt to hitting ninety nine all the time, right? It is really hard. So let's 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 flip our philosophy and the Royals refused to do it. Until it was just, frankly, it was too late. Yeah, and what's interesting is it seems like the attitude you would have towards drafting pitchers, if you if you had that mindset, is to just draft arms, like draft athletic arm talent, and then you can turn it into whatever you need it to be. And it seems like, especially with last year's draft, that is an approach that they kind of took. You look at a guy like Mason Barnett, he perfectly reflects that. I think Zoback actually reflects that as well. And you look at, oh, who's that lefty who... I don't, Sandlin. What about the Sandlin Sandlin guy? reflects that perfectly fantastic. as well. He's yeah. a dude who was walking like six guys at outing in Oklahoma last year, and he's just mowing down. Uh, I don't. Are they in the Sally League? Well, he's mowing down low A right now, and so yeah. you know he's a dude. 
all these guys seem to reflect. They had it on the scouting side, at least at the very least last year. And they were like, seeming like, like knowing like, Hey, these, these development guys, they're not going to be here very long, or they're going to change the development style, at least philosophy quite a bit. And so, you know, I think they're doing it right to some degree now taking those types of guys, you know, later in the draft, take, take the athletic arms later in the draft and then develop them into what you need them to be because you can help them throw better sliders. You can help them throw harder. You can help them learn new pitches. That's not that hard in modern baseball. I do want to talk about some individual players, Alex, guys you're excited about. So maybe we'll just go like a top three. And then Mike, if you have a couple you're excited about, throw them in after Alex, who are the top three pitchers in that minor league system that you're really excited about and paying close attention to right now? First one is, is kind of cheating, but Frank Mazzucato looks like a different pitcher. He looks like they've said, Hey, you're going to throw your four seam really hard to the top of the zone. Stop worrying about what happens because nobody's ever going to hit your curveball. And if you can get ahead in the zone with a fastball, we will just throw curveballs until the batter's out. And like, that is an approach when you have a, a curveball like Frank Mazzucato. Last year, it, again, it's too much trying to be Greg Maddox, not enough trying to be Randy Johnson. And they have very much turned Frank Mazzucato into an attack the, with the fastball hitter, kill everybody with the curveball. Nobody, his curveball, I don't know if you guys have seen the swings he gets on his curveball. Unbelievable. Some of those it things. It's unbelievable. I mean, he could drop the ball on the plate and guys are flailing at it. And it's just like, okay, that's an approach. The stuff, not that different. The approach, very different. Love to see it. Love the way that Mazzucato is pitching. Uh, another one that's, I think, kind of underrated, Andrew Hoffman. I posted recently that he has dropped his arm slot. It is the same adjustment that Chris Bubich made, it, and for the same reason, oh. because the Royals, in some capacity, have – I, I don't want to give them too much credit yet. We'll see how they draft, and then that'll kind of be the, hey, they've clearly gotten onto something. But the Royals were very bad with vertical approach angle up until, I would say, last year, because this is the first time I'm seeing it, where they've figured out, finally, how lowering the approach angle from the pitchers helps spin the ball in a way that allows it to ride through the top of the zone rather than sinking. And, and, and for some guys, sinkers are fine. I think Jackson Kowar is a guy that would benefit greatly from throwing a turbo sinker and a cutter all the time, ditch the four-seam fastball altogether. So it's not for everybody. But there are some guys, and you have to have all of the data in front of you in order to know who, but they've clearly identified Hoffman and Bubich's guys. Hey, drop that release point down a little bit, spin the ball to the top of the zone, quit worrying about trying to make the ball sink and cut, and just let it ride. Bubich had Tommy John and everybody was freaking about him freaking out about him pitching in the cold and I was like I kind of wonder if that wasn't from a change of you know his arm angle a little bit so we'll see about Hoffman if he can stay healthy throwing from this angle great love it but I'm really excited about how that will play for him um and then the other guy David Sandlin I just <laughs> I was really Marcus I think you and I were both on the exact same page when they drafted him we, I think we both knew exactly what the what the goal was and why they drafted him, and now he's showing off. And it is it is impressive because the way that he attacks with his fastball, he pitches with his fastball like a Verlander, like a Cole, like a Scherzer, where you know you think about guys like Shane Bieber, 
you think about guys like Framber Valdez, they have lots of success, but a lot of it is on the back of the curveball. There are only a few guys in baseball today who can attack with the fastball all the time, and that can be their pitch. Lance Lynn, Jacob deGrom come to mind, and that is just their pitch. They're going to throw a lot of fastballs, and David Sandlin looks like a guy who might be able to do that. Now, without having all the data in front of me, I can't tell you, hey, his fastball traits are similar to fastball traits that play with the big league level, so maybe it's a mirage in low A, but it looks like a guy who's going to throw his fastball early and often and not feel like he has to back down from it. Yeah, I do think that is a little bit of a mirage from him. I, I think the fastball's gotten a little bit better since college, and so that's why it's just the low-A guys can't touch it. But he does have that slider, which for him is incredible. Mm-hmm. That was his best pitch coming out of college. And so, you know, I, I, I'm not, I, I really like him. I think that was a very smart draft pick on their, on their part. That dude wants to eat soul on the mound. I mean, he is aggressive as hell. Uh, and so it is really a lot of fun to watch him pitch. I don't think he's, I don't think he's all that long. For Columbia, I think, you know, give him a couple months, three months maybe, and they'll probably say that's enough of him not getting challenged at all by these <laughs> low A hitters. Let's get him up to quad cities and see what he can do there. But Mike, any guys in the pitching realm who are uh, interesting to you uh, down in the in the minor leagues? Uh, you know, just the kind of the getting back on track of Alec Marsh is very interesting to me um, mm-hmm. as far as pitching goes. And I got a lot of guys on the hitting side that are intriguing to me. But uh, if Alec Marsh can can get back to where he's missing bats and he was kind of a, he was kind of missing bats last year, but then he would give up the run production, which is insane against him. And we talked about him in that interview that we did before the season. And he was very open about, about the results, not necessarily matching the process that they were going through. And so it's good to see him maybe get the results that he was looking for last year uh, with, you know, cause it looked like he was, you know, bound for the Kansas city rotation within the next couple of years until last year. So uh, whatever they're doing with him, I haven't had a chance to see him start yet. I just see his numbers, but uh, keep it up and hopefully you can keep that going. Um, on the hitting side, I'm more into like uh, Jason Guzman has really kind of impressed me. I kind of out of nowhere and I'm a big Peyton Wilson guy, as you guys know. Good to see him kind of continue from his second half last year. That was pretty good. Uh, those are two of the guys that I'm, I'm kind of uh, excited about, along with, you know, some of the other uh, Carter Jensen's, even though he doesn't have maybe the numbers, some of the some of the isolated things that we've seen, the patience, the power, the fact that that Quad Cities team is stacked with pretty much every you know good player the Royal System has, and and it looks like maybe more are coming that way. But uh, just to see him do that as what is he still nineteen? I think he'll be twenty this year, mm-hmm. uh, and that'll be that. He, I'll tell you, there's there's not a player who comes up to the plate in minor league baseball that I'm more excited for than than Carter Jensen. Every time he comes up. Because you're going to go, man, he just worked that count like a pro or man, he just drilled the shit out of that ball. I mean, he's he's that exciting. Yeah, I think we got to mention the name Noah Cameron, who is also just mowing guys oh, down yeah. at Quad Joe Cities Town. right now. <laughs> Joe Town. <laughs> we saw him get we saw him get stopped in, in uh, Arizona. Somebody wanted to talk to him about Joe Town. Oh, there. yeah. <laughs> Mike and I have a thing about Joe Town. Seriously? If you're from Maryville, yep. you have a thing about Joe Town. It's oh a thing. Gosh. I'm sorry. It's, yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, we love Joe Town's finest, Noah Cameron. He, he's he been electric in quad cities uh, so far this year, striking guys out. ton of promise on him. So I love to see that too. Um, hitters. Let's talk hitters. Mike already brought it up. Uh, some hitters who are really like piquing my interest so far this year. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna take the one that I'm sure Alex wants to take, and that's Caden Wallace, who is really uh, shelling in Quad Cities right now. A guy I got to take a close look at down in uh, Arizona, 
wondered a little bit about the defense. He's a little more stiff than I thought he would be, but boy, he is uh, not stiff at all at the plate right now. He is destroying baseballs. And so that's fun to see uh, down in quad cities, a better approach than he had in college. A guy who's taking a few more walks, who's, who's being a little more selective with what he's swinging at uh, strikeout numbers down and that sort of thing. And so love to see that down in quad cities. Hopefully he can continue to develop right alongside his buddy, Gavin cross. Mike, what'd you have? I just wanted to ask Alex, what do you think of his defense? Is he a guy that is going to be, we all, I think we all think he can stick at third. Is he going to be something, somebody who's above average at third, a la like a Mike Moustakis when he was playing third and, and playing a real solid third base, or is it somebody you're going to be like, Hey, you know, he plays third when he has to, and then maybe he's playing first or DH and when he's not. He, he looks to me like just the way he fields the ball. He looks a lot like Matt Chapman. Like I can't get it out of my head, but he is much more like Moose. I think at, at third base where plays where he can come in and balls that are hit at him are going to be fielded a hundred percent of the time. Moose was really good coming in on bunts, on short hoppers, and Moose had some of the surest hands I think we've ever seen from a Royals third baseman. He did not make a lot of errors with the glove even early on where I think you know Moose wasn't as rangy as some other guys. He was pretty good going to the line, but anything that Moose has left, he didn't get to a lot of. And I think Wallace can, can be that. I think Wallace is very sure-handed. He comes in uh, – Preston Farr posted a video – of Wallace coming in charging a ball today that was really impressive. Um, I just don't know, like, if he's ever going to win a gold glove. Probably not. But I think he's definitely a big league third baseman. Any hitters that you're particularly interested in, in uh, seeing this year? Nick Prado. Uh, the The approach is so different. Like, he's still being patient at the plate, but he is finally learning. And, and Carter Jensen, I posted a video of him today, finally learning when to shorten up and go the other way. Because that was the thing with Prado when he came to the big leagues last year is all the, the backwards case, all the strikeouts looking. It's like, man, I know that pitch is really close. Maybe it's not even a strike. But you got two strikes on you, and we can sit here and bitch about the umpire or we can figure out how to put that ball in play and, and effectively put it in play. And Jensen today worked to count 3-2, but the even the 3-1 swing that Carter Jensen took was just a mammoth hack. And it's like, well, that's not productive because now it's 3-2, but then he shortened up, real flat bat path, pokes the ball in the left field for a single. It's like, hey, hey, that's progress. Nick Prado has been doing that all year. And he I, I posted on Twitter, highest oppo percentage of his career, highest line drive rate of his career, um, highest middle, going up the middle rate of his career, lowest strikeout rate of his career, and he is still walking like 13% of the time. It's like this is fantastic news. Because he's still, we know he's got a good eye. We know he can hit the ball very far. And now he's starting to like put the pieces together. I really think Nick Prado is going to soar here pretty quickly. And by the way, looks really good in the outfield defensively in terms of like a rotational piece out there. Just if you ever wanted to get a Fran Mill Reyes, a Vinny Pasquantino, and a Nick Prado in the lineup all at the same time, you don't have to put Fran Mill in the outfield. You could put Nick Prado in the outfield. He's going to be serviceable where he should probably be playing first base every day. But Vinny's been fine. Vinny deserves to be out there periodically. And Prado has shown that he can go to the outfield in order to allow them to do that. 
Yeah, that's a, I, I, I'm really interested to see what he's, because right now his, I know his bat bip numbers are really low and he's, he's hitting into some hard luck and stuff like that. But, you know, it is still early in the minor league season. It's still pretty early in the major league season. You, you could see some big time regression coming for him from him any day now. Month or two, maybe he's up and this offense looks a little bit different with a Prado and a Pasquantino in the lineup. Melendez, Bobby Witt Jr. And it starts to look like, okay, maybe there are a few more guys. Maybe, maybe, maybe Hunter Dozier doesn't get so many plate appearances in that lineup. Maybe, uh, <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe a few other guys don't get so many plate appearances be, in be those lineups. Be all, all those lefties and Duffy just hacking it out. Just see what happens. Duffy just hacking it out. <laughs> oh man. Well, I think that's all the time we have for you today, Alex. Thank you so much for joining us. I feel completely enlightened by this conversation. I love this conversation. I could have it for days. Uh, we're going to have you back on to talk draft stuff. Of course, we're going to have you back on periodically to talk minor league stuff just because we love it. Um, but thank you so much for joining us. Everybody follow him at Royals Farm. You're going to want all that information. It is the best follow on Twitter, in my opinion. Follow Alex. Thank you so much for, jo- for joining us for this conversation. Gents, thank you, guys. Have a good one. Thanks. A full slate of games for the Royals this week. They continue a long road trip heading to Arizona for three against the Diamondbacks before heading up north to put the word on the streets in four <laughs> games against the division rivals, Minnesota Twins. Who's going to catch that reference? Anybody? I hope that's everybody does. Cut. That's a great that's one. A pretty deep, that's a pretty deep cut. Mike, tell us about the sand people of Arizona. <laughs> the sand. They're called Jawas, man. Um, <laughs> no, uh, the Diamondbacks are 12 and 11. They're tied for first in the NL West with the Dodgers. Who'd have guessed that? Uh, what is it? 23 games in. Nobody would have picked that. Um in that first matchup, we got Keller versus Tommy Henry, a 25-year-old lefty out of Michigan, making his 2023 debut. Uh, 5.36 ERA last year with a 1.46 whip. So not the best numbers last year from Tommy Henry. Uh, fastball tops out at about 92. Slider, curveball, changeup. He made nine starts last year and wasn't really fooling anybody. So there's a chance to get some offense going against Tommy Henry, and hopefully Keller can uh, kind of stay on the same path he's been on. He's been pretty good this year. Uh, in that second game, it'll be Brady Singer. We're hoping can bounce back against Ryan Nelson. Twenty-five Ryan, like Ryan Sandberg, by the way. In case you're wondering on the spelling, I, I don't know if he pronounces it Ryan or Ryan. It's it's R Y N E for well, those counting at home. We're gonna we're gonna pretend like it's Ryan Sandberg and just say Ryan. Um, okay. Twenty-five-year-old right-handed pitcher out of Oregon, four-point-nine-one ERA and a one-point-one-eight WHIP, which is pretty good WHIP there. Fastball, uh, 93 to 94, slider, cutter, changeup, curveball. Uh, he's throwing his fastball a lot for a fastball that gets hit as much as his does. So there's a 283 batting average and a 522 slugging against his fastball, but he's still choosing to throw it quite a bit, which doesn't seem very intelligent to me. Uh, that last game, we don't know who's going to be starting for the Royals because I assume that's Chris Bubich's spot. So we'll kind of see if they use the opener approach again. Um, but they'll be going against a hell of a pitcher in Zach Gallon, a 27-year-old right-handed pitcher out of North Carolina, 2.59 ERA. He's got a whip that is .80. That's really damn good. Um, fastball, 93 to 94. Curveball, changeup cutter. His changeup is one of the best in Major League Baseball. Devastating. He's throwing a curveball uh, more than he has in the past, but he's just racking up the strikeouts again. Very, very good pitcher in Zach Gallon. Yeah, it looks like we're getting their four, five, one slots in their rotation. And so let's get a chance to take some uh, some wins in those first two. Hopefully they take advantage. After the uh, down, heading down to the desert, they're going to fly very far up north to the to the frozen tundra of Minnesota. Uh, the Twins are 12 and 10. 
so far this year. That's good enough for first in the AL Central. I think they're leading the uh, Guardians by a game. Uh, they aren't crushing it offensively so far this season. Only a 91 weighted runs created plus uh, as a team for them. Uh, they're also 21st in runs so far. They're getting some offense from guys like Buxton and Solano. Uh, they're doing pretty well, but they've got some guys just doing absolutely nothing at the plate. Nick Gordon, their second baseman, has a very Royals-esque 268 OPS. That's 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 Massey territory Yikes. down there. Uh, in four, that's a, that's OPS, everybody. That's a 268 <laughs> OPS. That's his on base plus his slugging, 268. That's and he's got like 50 plate appearances <laughs> for him this year. And so yeah, not not great from some of their guys. And they have other guys too who are just in the in a deep dark pit offensively. Um, their pitching staff much better. Much, much better. They yeah. are sixth in team ERA at 3.47. They are first in that very important uh, category. We've talked about uh, strikeout to walk ratio. They're very first in that at 4.14. Pablo Lopez has been incredible. The guy they traded for this offseason, Sonny Gray and Joe Ryan are looking like aces right now in that rotation. Four of their five starters have ERAs under three and a half. And so the rotation, real good for Minnesota. Let's hope they, I don't know, Maybe uh, stay up all night drinking the night before, or some, <laughs> something goes wrong the night before they face the Royals. Because uh, hope I want to see some runs scored against that Minnesota team. Got a wicked case of the Twin City trots going in my, <laughs> you know, that's what they need. We need we need that to happen to somebody, Pablo Lopez. <laughs> We'll end this week's episode like we end every episode with our Just A Bit Outside segment. Mike, you have criticized me for calling you boring. So tell me about your exciting, exciting life and what you've been doing the last week. Well, uh, this week, you know, if you live in a like a neighborhood or something like that, or you have an extended family, when someone gets a dumpster delivered to their house, like that they're going to throw away, maybe they're renovating or moving, everybody takes advantage of it. You know, everybody in your family, sometimes it's neighbors and stuff, whatever. So my in-laws are moving and they are, they have a dumpster. And so we were like, yeah, okay, let's get everything out of our house that we need, that we don't need so we can clear up room and stuff. Um, But we thought like, you know, we'll put all of it out to the curb and let anybody take any of it that they want. I live in a small town called Greenwood, Missouri. I give Greenwood a hard time sometimes. Okay. Deservedly. Greenwood deserves it. Deservedly. Um, Fireworks are not year around thing, people. (laughs) Fireworks and bush lights. what we do well. Okay. Um, But. I will say this, the good people of Greenwood, they came and they took our stuff, which was great. You know, it's like nobody just lets stuff get thrown away. They all try and get it. Now, they may be taking it so they can sell it at a garage sale. I don't know. Make money off it. I'm fine with that. Um, but they they came by. They were nice. They're like, yeah, can we get this? Yeah, take it, whatever you want. And so I've decided, like, I don't really need to take things to the dump ever. I'll just set it out on the curb and somebody's going to come take it. I mean, they took stuff that I never would have thought would have been taken. And so, uh, yeah, I, I had curbside pickup, green hood style. Uh, it, it worked out well for us today. So, and kudos to our in-laws for letting us use that dumpster. Yes, that is that is a suburban uh, truism. If you set something out on the curb, it is getting taken. Okay, <laughs> so um, yeah, great that you're willing to get rid of some of your stuff. You're you're able to get rid of some of that stuff. Great that your in-laws are giving me some stuff, which I love. Yeah. Um. So that's nice. Um, I'm talking about an author that I really love to read. And I think you would love him too, Mike. In fact, you may have already read some of his stuff, but I downloaded a new audiobook from him. It's called The Splendid and the Vile. It's about um the German raids on London during mm. the Second World War. The Blitz. Um, and that writer's name is Eric Larson. 
if you've never read or or listened to any of his books, he's written some amazing ones. He's well known for written a book, writing a book called The Devil in the White City, which is a book about a serial killer who operated at the 1901, I want to say, World's Fair. Um, but the first book I ever read from him, or I guess I listened to it, uh, maybe I listened to it, or I can't remember, um, was a book called... Uh, uh, what's it called in the garden of beasts. And it's also during world war II, but it's actually written about, uh, this family, the American ambassador to Germany's family that lived there at the time. And it sort of tells the story of the Nazification of Germany through the eyes of this family, American family that was living there, including the daughter of the American ambassador who got tied up with the Nazis in various ways. Um, but Larson is just a phenomenal writer. And I want to give him his due and sort of encourage you to go read his stuff because it is amazing. He writes amazing books about, he writes history in the most accessible way I've ever seen somebody write it. And it's compelling and it's got narrative and it's just, it's detailed. And you, you feel like you get to understand these characters from history, some of whom would be very bit players in like most historical narratives, become prominent players in his. And some of the ones you would think are like the most you know, uh, prominent figures in history get new and added details because of the way he tells their stories. And so I highly recommend going out and finding something from Eric Larson. He's got a bunch of books about a bunch of different things, but find something from him and read it or listen to it. You will be captivated by the narrative if you like good writing of any kind, I think, uh, because it's not, it's not fiction, but it reads as well as fiction in my mind. And so, yeah, give Eric Larson a shot. Highly recommend. I don't think I've ever read anything from him. I've heard his name before, so he must be pretty uh, prominent in the history world. But uh, for me, that guy that writes like that, Adam's, Adam Horschild, uh, if you've ever read anything, he, he wrote, uh, I think he's most famous for uh, To End All Wars, but he wrote another huge one called King Leopold's Ghost. They're both very good. Uh, but yeah, I'll try the Larson guy sometime. Why not? We'll end on a little intellectual note there. Mm. And so uh, we will be back next week, hopefully to talk about some Royals wins, but we'll see. Uh, <laughs> until then, be good to each other. And go Royals. <laughs>